This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Typically, if you heard a title like, Is Belief in God Rational?, you would expect the speaker to give you all these arguments for God's existence and see if they work or not, or uh, what are the, the, the um, merits and demerits of them. And I am going to talk about some of those arguments uh, towards the end of the talk, but I want to spend some time talking about the distinct approach that Thomas Aquinas has to the issue of faith and reason. Uh, as Max mentioned already, uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, is one of the greatest, if not, uh, at least in my judgment, uh, the greatest philosopher, at least in the history of the Catholic Church, and he is one of the great philosophers uh, in the history of the world. Uh, he has many things to say about lots of topics, but one of the issues that he focuses on in the Summa Theologica and more extensively in uh, the other uh, large book that he authored, the Summa Contra Gentilis, is this issue of faith and reason. So there are different approaches to faith and reason. Before I bring up Aquinas, I want to just mention different ways that people uh, have approached the question. Uh, one, I, oh, by the way, you should all have a little study sheet, a little a collection of notes, and I am going to try to stick to the notes and uh, get through them, uh, but I may not get through all of them. And if you have any questions about portions of it that we don't get through, you certainly are free to ask that at the end. Um, so the different approaches uh, to the issue of faith and reason. So one approach is the put your eggs all in one basket approach, or that's what, at least what I call it. And that's when somebody believes that they have like one good argument <laughs> And they just simply lay it on the table. And that's probably not a wise approach to the question. And uh, something that we'll see later on, it's not even clear that's how people come to believe in something like God anyways, right? Um, my own experience, I'm, I'm a philosopher and I've not always believed in God. Um, when I was uh, in high school, I kind of became an agnostic. And I eventually ceased to hold that view later on. But I don't think there was ever a moment where there was an identifiable argument that persuaded me. It turns out, though, in retrospect, when I look at the arguments that I rejected, I say to myself, how could I have rejected those arguments? They seem so plausible now which shows you that coming to belief isn't always a matter of having arguments. I mean, think about, uh, I, I think a lot of times emotion is involved. We're swayed by people that we think are influential, right? So all those are factoring that are factors. Now, of course, arguments I think are fundamentally important. As a philosopher, that's the currency of my discipline. But the reality is, is that coming to faith isn't, in fact, I would say for the vast majority of people, it's not a matter of that one knockdown drag out argument. It sometimes is a combination of things. Or I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you. Do you ever come to believe something or, or, or come to realize you believe something you didn't know you believed? 
That is, you go, oh, I guess I do believe that, <laughs> right? So, and, and, and Aquinas, we'll see, actually addresses that in his work. He, he discusses, although he himself believes that, that God can be defended with a rational argument, but he realizes that a vast majority of people do not come to faith that way, and they need not come to faith that way in order to be reasonable or rational people. In fact, if you think about all our beliefs, how many of the beliefs that you hold about lots of things are based on arguments that you have assessed and evaluated and reflected on? I'll admit that most of my beliefs aren't like that. <laughs> right? So I believe, for example, I believe long before I studied political philosophy, I believed that the pursuit of truth and the pursuit of justice and the pursuit of goodness were all things worthy of pursuit. I didn't, I didn't have any arguments to believe that. They just seemed right. Now, later on, when I studied philosophy, I thought, oh, there are good arguments for those things, right? But I wasn't irrational before I studied those arguments, okay? So, so the relationship between faith and reason is a lot more complicated than we think. I had a, a friend in graduate school, Scott Curhan. I, uh, as Max said, I went to Fordham University in New York City, and uh, it's a Catholic university, uh, but we had a few unbelievers among the doctoral students, and one of them was a friend, Scott Curhan. and Scott and I would argue with each other all the time. I would give him rides home. I, I was one of the few grad students that had a car uh, while living in New York City, and I would sometimes drive him home, and on the way there, we would argue about God. And later on, after I left Fordham, he sent me a letter, uh, a handwritten letter, saying that he said, you won the argument. I now believe in God. This was four or five years later. And I wrote him back and I asked him, well, which particular argument was it? And he said, it was just one day it struck me that I should believe. And then he said, then I went back and read all the things you recommended that I had read before and they seemed so much better. So there's something else going on when it comes to belief than just treating belief in God as if it's a mathematical equation. So, so, so one, one way to deal with the question of belief in God or I guess virtually any other belief is to just put all your eggs in one basket. The other is, another approach is the drink from a fire hose approach. And that is you present, you present what you believe are several reasonable arguments for God's existence. This has a lot more merit to it. Um, it doesn't really address though the issues that I've already raised, namely that sometimes in fact people uh, believe or disbelieve uh, not because of arguments they may have heard in a debate, but probably over time, right, or relationships they have. But the cumulative case is actually, a, um, I think, Peter Kraft at Boston College, if you go to his website, he has, a, he has a, 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 an article or a, a PDF called 100 Arguments for God's Existence, or maybe 20 arguments, I, I forget. And I think there's, there's a, an internet site that has thousands of arguments. Uh, obviously, they're all of a, a variety of quality. Okay, so, so one approach is the first one we mentioned, one argument. The other is, um, you know, you present a bunch of 
of arguments that you think are reasonable. Uh, Again, I think the difficulty with thinking of belief in God as reducible to rational argument doesn't fully capture how people usually come to belief. Again, it's not to say arguments aren't important, and we'll, we'll see in a few minutes how Aquinas thinks arguments are important. Now, there's a third way to deal with this question, and it's what I call the reformed approach. Now, what I mean by the reformed approach is I'm not, it's not referring to an approach that had gone bad and been rehabilitated. It refers to a particular type of thinking about uh, Christianity, which we typically associate with Calvinism. It comes out of the Reformation. And so there are certain Christian philosophers who are reformed philosophers, not that they were like bad and they were were bad philosophers who, you know, went to rehab or something like that. They were just, they were called reformed philosophers because they're part of that theological tradition. And those reformed philosophers think that you don't need an argument in order to believe, in order to be rational to believe in God. And believe it or not, Thomas Aquinas' view is not that far away from theirs. It's actually closer than you may think. And the most well-known defender of this view is a philosopher named Alvin Plantinga, who taught for years at the University of Notre Dame. He's now retired. And Plantinga argues that belief in God is properly basic. What What does that mean? That's a fancy philosophy term that simply refers to certain beliefs that we have that seem to be foundational or fundamental. So there are different ways that we can acquire beliefs. One way we can acquire beliefs is through evidence, right? And so what Plantinga means by evidence is something you point to to prove something. So like a lawyer in a court, let's say a prosecuting attorney, will present evidence as to why the defendant is guilty. And so you infer from the evidence the defendant is guilty. That is one way we can know things. Another way we can know things is to believe it because it's self-evidently true, like all bachelors are unmarried males. Right? That's just true by definition, right? You don't need to, like, oh, I've interviewed every bachelor and they're all unmarried. I wonder if the next one will be. No, they're just, it's just true by definition, right? And, a, and another, another thing are, are, are what are called incorrigible truths. Those are things that, you can't be wrong about, but they're not true by definition. Like, I'm being appeared to by a group, right? So that's something that's an incorrigible belief, because I can't be mistaken that I'm being appeared to by a group. Now, it could be that you're all not there and I'm just deluded, right? That's possible, but it's not, it can't be possible that I'm not being appeared to by what's ever out there, okay? So traditionally, Planeta argues out of the Enlightenment, that is the period of time after the Middle Ages and after the Renaissance when certain thinkers said that the the only way that you could be rational is to believe based on evidence or beliefs that are properly basic, like those beliefs that I mentioned that are self-evidently true and incorrigible, or things that we infer from evidence, right? Plantinga says, well, why can't belief in God be properly basic, right? Why can't it be like those other beliefs? I mean, after all, 
There's lots of properly basic beliefs that we hold for which we don't have evidence. Like, so think about the claim, it's wrong to torture children for fun. What's your evidence for that, for that being wrong, being a correct statement? It's wrong to torture children for fun. Everyone, we hope, believes it, right? But it's actually difficult if, somebody, if you say, well, unless you can give me an argument as to why that's, that belief is true, you're not rational holding it. Or what about the fact that other minds exist? So we all believe that the other minds exist, right? But we don't believe it because we, we, we say, oh, there are these people walking around that look like me and act like me, and so I infer they're like me because I have a mind. You believe it immediately. So it's not, it, it's, in other words, it's, it's a belief that strikes you immediately as true and you don't even think about it, just like most of our moral beliefs. And so Planica says, or how about this, the belief that the world wasn't created a half an hour ago with all the memories and beliefs that we think are about a past that never existed. I mean, that's possibly true, right? I mean, it's maybe, maybe we were created only half an hour ago, right? And yet it seems perfectly rational to reject that belief. And so Platica says, you know, belief in God is kind of like those beliefs. Like the person that goes to the Grand Canyon and sees the majestic beauty of it, and it strikes them that's the handiwork of a maker greater than himself, right? Or when you do something wrong and you feel wicked, and you sense the eyes of God upon you. Planica says, those are the moments that people come to believe and they seem to be properly basic and they just, and they seem to have the same character as a lot of these other beliefs that we hold for which we don't like have, we don't argue for, right? And given the fact that a vast majority in the history of the human race have believed in God without having all these arguments, and why not, why can't belief in God be properly basic, right? So, so that's the reformed approach. And it's, a, it's an interesting approach. And it's one that I think actually comes, aligns a little bit with the view of Thomas Aquinas. So let's look at Thomas Aquinas's approach. He believed, by the way, who was Thomas Aquinas? I know this is called the Thomistic Institute and, and many of you probably have heard of Thomas Aquinas, if not all of you. Uh, Thomas Aquinas was a 13th century philosopher. I mentioned earlier, probably uh, one of the greatest philosophers of the Western world, I think, globally as well. Uh, clearly the most influential philosopher other than maybe Augustine in the, in the history of the Catholic Church. There are many people that are followers of Aquinas who aren't even Catholic. I have several Protestant friends who consider themselves Thomists. Uh, he was a Dominican priest. He entered the Dominican order uh, when he was uh, a young man. His parents wanted him to become a Benedictine because he came from this uh, aristocratic family and the Benedictines were, you know, kind of cool. They were the kind of monks that rich people liked, whereas the Dominicans were not really, they didn't live in, uh, you know, in, in seclusion. They lived uh, in the rough and tumble of the city, and they were part of a they were part of a mendicant order, which meant they were beggars. And so, you know, for Aquinas's aristocratic family, this was kind of embarrassing. Uh, but he nevertheless did it. In fact, he his um, his mother Theodora tried to stop him, and he escaped. Uh, 
Naples and went to went off to Paris and his brother, I think his brother Ronaldo and some friends kidnapped him and put him in the family castle. And they, uh, now I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but his brothers put a prostitute in there, in his room to try to tempt him away from the priesthood. And he, he uh, fought her off with, I don't know, some kind of, what are, they, what are the things on the, um, the fireplace? Like a torch? Yeah. And so I don't know if it's true or not, but they eventually gave up and he wind up uh, becoming, uh, moving on and studying under um, Albert the Great. In any event, so, so and Albert the Great, uh, first he runs it, he, 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 while in Naples, he, he is first introduced to the works of Aristotle and then Albert the Great, who's also interested in Aristotle, becomes uh, Aquinas' pupil. And from there, uh, he uh, writes his, uh, equivalent of a doctor dissertation on uh, Peter Lombard's sentences, which was kind of the standard theological text of the time. And eventually he writes uh, just gazillion pages. Uh, I think at one point he was so productive during a four year period, I think he was averaging 4,000 words a day writing. He died at the, I think at the age of 49, about three months out on March 7th, I know that because that was his old feast day. Um, several months after he had a kind of mystical experience, he turned to his assistant and he said, uh, everything I've written is nothing but straw. And I'm not saying that he was, in one sense, whatever he saw so awed him and overwhelmed him. Uh, he probably got a glimpse of the beatific vision <laughs> and he never wrote again. Uh, but he wrote an enormous amount of, of work, uh, biblical commentaries, commentaries on Aristotle. His, I mentioned his, his, his dissertation on Peter Lombard's sentences. Um, these, uh, these works called Disputations, where he went over, goes over issues like the nature of truth and the nature of virtue. He dealt with everything. In fact, there are things in, in, in um, I think in, in the Summa, there's a, a portion where uh, he talks about rest, and, he's, and, he's, and I think, I, I don't know how, whether it's been, um, it's probably been um, uh, written in a popularized way, but he talks about having a glass of wine and taking a bath. Yeah. So Aquinas writes about everything, but he most uh, often, or his, his works that are the most influential, most well-known, the Summa Theologica and the Summa Contra Gentilis, deal with issues concerning faith and reason. So what is Aquinas' approach to faith and reason? Well, uh, for Aquinas, he sees his project as showing how faith and reason are complementary and that God can be known via reason, but need not be in order to have faith. I'll explain what that means in, it means in a few minutes. He has two ways to, of looking at faith. One, he, he, talks, he talks about something called the preambles of faith. And then he talks about something called the articles of faith. Now, what's the difference between the two? Well, it's important to remember here for Aquinas, he's a Christian, right? And he believes that God obviously is the creator of the universe, but he also believes that God is so different from his, the created order that we cannot know God in his essence. Like we can know the essences of things in the material world, 
right? We can know lots about human beings. So, for example, Aristotle says, and Aquinas agrees, that human beings are rational animals. We are living organisms like dogs and cats, but we're also different. We have these intellects that can know things far beyond the material world. We can know the natures of things. So we, can, we not only can know our dog, Fido, we can know dogness, right? And that our intellects have that power, right? So we're different from other creatures. But because God is, can't be known in, in his essence, and yet his creation reflects in some way his nature, we can only know things about God, according to Aquinas, moving from the natural world and drawing inferences about things beyond the natural world. And he believes, he calls what the deliverances of that reasoning the preambles of faith. Well, what, are, what, are the, what are those preambles? Things like there's the existence of a first cause we call God. And we can know a lot about that God. Uh, we can know that he is omnipotent, omniscient, simple, the only being. Uh, that is to say he, he's one all these things we can know about God just from our natural reason. Uh, but there are other things we can know from our natural reason. We can know that there's a soul. Uh, we can know things we can, uh, about the souls of other creatures. So there are things that we can know about beyond the natural world based on our reason. But they, none of that, though, can deliver to us those things that only God can reveal about his nature and about the plan of salvation. And those he calls the articles of faith. So let me, what are some of the articles of faith? So in the list, basically it's the, uh, most of the content of the Apostles' Creed. So God is one, God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit, God is Creator, God is the source of grace for our redemption. God will raise us to everlasting life. Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. Christ suffered, died, and was buried. Christ ascended into hell. Christ was raised from the dead. Christ ascended into heaven, and Christ will judge the living and the dead. Basically, kind of a summary of, of, of what we would consider the Apostles' Creed today. Now, Aquinas believes that we only can assent to the articles of faith as a consequence of God's grace moving us. So this is what, this is where Aquinas' view has something in common with the reform view. So you can, let's say, have an argument for God's existence and be persuaded. So, so think about, for Aquinas, for him, having a rational argument for God's existence is having an argument that once you understand it, you can't help but believe it. Right, so if I say something like, all bachelors are unmarried, Al Gore is a bachelor, therefore, Al Gore is unmarried, right? So once you hear those two premises, you can't help but believe the conclusion. So Aquinas believes that when it comes to the preambles of faith, if a person takes the time to study the arguments for God's existence, once they see that the argument is sound, they should immediately believe. But that's not an act of faith. That is an act of reason. So there's that passage uh, from the book of James where James says, the demons believe and they tremble, right? They don't have faith, 
Right? So Aquinas would say, yes, you can have a sort of intellectual, you can draw an intellectual conclusion, but that's not the same as the ascent to faith. That is actually, that has to be moved by, God, by God's grace. And that's a kind of mystery. Why does it happen to certain people and not to others? And also the content of those articles of faith are virtually all of them except for the first, uh, God, well, God is one, and even that God, I would even exclude God as Father. That's something that you can only know, Aquinas says, by divine revelation. That is Holy Scripture. And you, you ascend to it not because you have a deductively valid argument that you have to believe in it. It's because the grace of God has moved your will to ascend to it. In fact, you may not be fully convinced of all the arguments intellectually, but you're moved to faith by the Holy Spirit working on your heart. And so you could have this situation. So I'm, I'm gonna tell a little story here, an illustration of this. I call it the, the story of Tony and Tina. So imagine there are two individuals, Tony and Tina. Tony is an Uber driver in Las Vegas with no background in philosophy or theology, but he believes in God. He cannot give you a philosophical argument as to why, and he typically tells people who ask him that he believes who ask him that he believes in God because, as he puts it, that's what I was taught in Sunday school. So as with most people, he simply believes, just as he believes that the sun is the center of the solar system, even though he could not give you an astronomical argument to prove it. And if you pressed him on what he means by God, he could tell you that he believes there is only one God and that God is the creator of the universe without a body, all-powerful, and the subject of the Irving Berlin song, God Bless America. Uh, but Tony does not embrace any religious faith. He does not attend a church, synagogue, or mosque, though he does pray once in a while when he goes to Sam's Town and puts money on his beloved New York Yankees. <laughs> Tina, on the other hand, is a professor of philosophy at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and an expert in medieval Christian, Jewish, and Muslim thought. She has studied and taught all of the arguments for God's existence offered by Aquinas, Moses Maimonides, and Avicenna, and has come to the conclusion, based on those arguments, that there is only one God, and that God is the creator of the universe, without a body, all-powerful, and the subject of the Irving Berlin song, God Bless America. So like Tony, Tina subscribes to no religious faith. So each of them believes in one of the preambles of faith. Tina, because she has a rational argument. Tony, because he just believes it. But neither of them has faith. Now supposing, however that both Tony and Tina, after reading the New Testament and learning more about Christianity, are moved to be baptized and enter the church. They then assent to the articles of faith required for baptism. According to Aquinas, what each believed about God prior to coming to faith, though true and consistent with the Catholic faith, was not believed as an article of faith. Tony just believed in God, though he had neither faith nor knowledge. Tina had knowledge of God since she had an argument, but she had no faith. So here's an example from, from real life. That's a fictional example that I created from, in my own book called Never Doubt Thomas, uh, which came out two years ago uh, with Baylor University Press. Um, there's a philosopher um, named Mortimer Adler. I don't know if anyone's heard of Mortimer Adler. He, he died about, gosh, maybe 18, 19 years ago. He lived to his late 90s. He was one of the co-editors of the Encyclopedic Encyclopedia Britannica Great Books set. Uh, if you had grown up as I did in the 1970s and 80s, you virtually every home, uh, this is long before 
Google or online encyclopedias, people would have a set of, of uh, either Funk and Wagnall's encyclopedia, or they would have, in addition to that, the great books. And you'd see on people's shelves, and you'd see the Odyssey, Epictetus, Aristotle, replies. this was part of the, you know, sort of typical kind of middle American homes had these. And so uh, Adler was one of the editors of that great book series. But Adler, Adler was, believed in God. In fact, he published a book in 1981 called How to Think About God. And it is a defense of a Thomistic argument for God's existence. And he went on the lecture tour. I was an undergraduate at UALV, and I went to go see him. And uh, he gave his argument, and there were a lot of professors in the audience who disagreed with him, but Adler held his own. He did very well. Adler, at the time, though, had no religious faith. He believed in God, but he did not go to church. He, uh, his parents were Jewish, but they were kind of secular. They didn't, he didn't, have any, they didn't have any religious faith. Um, he, in his late 90s, or his mid-90s, or maybe early 90s, he contracted pneumonia. And he was in his hospital bed. This is several years before he died. It didn't kill him. He was sitting in his hospital bed, and all of a sudden, the Lord's Prayer occurred to him. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And he began to weep. And he called the chaplain's office of the hospital, and he said, I want to see a Catholic priest. And he converted. So he was a guy that had the rational argument his, all his life. He believed God existed. And then at another moment, so he would tell you, the God that I now have faith in is the same God I arrived at philosophically, but now I have faith. That's different, right? So this is why, you know, you probably have heard of the, you may have, heard, I don't know if any of you came, well, you were too young probably to come up with or known this or remembered it, uh, but about five years ago, six years ago now, there was a big dispute about a professor at Wheaton College in Illinois she was a political science professor. She, on her Facebook wall, she had written that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. And as you, you, some of you may know, Wheaton College in Illinois is an evangelical school. And the president of the university thought that that claim was inconsistent with the doctoral statement that she had to agree to uh, as, as a faculty member at Wheaton College. I wrote an article defending that professor, not because I believe that Islam and Christianity are the same religion, they are not. They have many uh, different beliefs, right? Especially about the nature of, of God being triune. Muslims reject that and Christians accept that. But as far as being, uh, as far as identifying God as the eternal, omnipotent, only creator of everything that exists, they got the right guy, right? And so I, I argued that in terms of, I didn't use this language in, in the article because it was for a popular venue, but in terms of the preambles of faith, Islam got, gets the right God, right? But because they reject the Christian Bible when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, that's where the disagreement lies. And Aquinas himself relied heavily in his own investigation of theology on 
the works of Avicenna, a Muslim philosopher, and Moses Maimonides, a Jewish philosopher, both of whom rejected the Trinity. Uh, but he thought they were talking about the same God. But Aquinas realized, though, that those things that Christians distinctly believe about God are those things you could never arrive at through natural reason. That's only something that God can reveal to you. Right? So, so imagine you have really good evidence. Supposing you're convinced that Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross, was buried in a tomb, and rose from the dead. And you say, I, I believe all the historical evidence. But that doesn't tell you that he died for your sins. That's something that, only, that you can only believe if you come to the, if you're moved to assent to the proposition that this is revealed by God in Scripture. So, what Aquinas is saying is that they're, they're complementary, faith and reason. Now, there's another, so I've already mentioned, talked about reason being this kind of, you know, once you see the premises, you immediately come to the conclusion. But there's another kind of reason that Aquinas believes in, uh, which some scholars call persuasive reason. It's the kind of reason that doesn't, that doesn't convince you, but it can sway you. And so some of the like historical issues that I just mentioned, like so supposing somebody has doubts about whether Jesus rose from the dead, and you give them sort of the historical arguments. Well, all historical arguments are contingent and probabilistic. They can't fully force you to assent to them, right? And why? But Aquinas says, though, it's only by faith moved by grace by which you can ascend to them. And the reason why Aquinas wants to say this, he wants to avoid, I have here on the sheet, I mentioned the Pelagian heresy. What's that? So there was this English monk named Pelagius who denied original sin. Or, and so for this reason, he thought that in principle, a person could actually live a perfect life and never need the grace of God. And so the thing, and so this was eventually, Augustine wrote in, in very critical comments about this, and then there was a regional church council called the Council of Orange, which kind of officially condemned it. And uh, what, what Aquinas wants to avoid is the Pelagian heresy, because if you say that faith depends on the mind's ability Apart from grace to come to a conclusion, you're saying it's all your own work, which is to deny grace. And so the thing that, so Aquinas wants to, on the one hand, acknowledge that human beings are rational animals, that God has given us reason, that we can evaluate arguments, and that reason is important to theological investigation. So for this reason, he says that, that it's good to be able to come up with answers to questions about, for example, how can it be that God is triune? Or um, is there evidence, do miracles give us evidence that Jesus was divine and so forth? It's good to come up with, to reason about these things, but ultimately it's not going to be reason that kicks the door down. It's going to be grace. Because if it's just reason, then it's you and not God, and then you're back to the Pelagian heresy. So one of the things that Aquinas is... is is, is dealing with here, and this is something that every Catholic thinker has to deal with. It's the inheritance that we've received from the church over the centuries. 
And so anytime you're sort of wrestling with these issues, you have to take into consideration that as well. So one of the things he, he has to deal with is the Pelagian heresy, right? So he wants to acknowledge reason. He wants to say that reason is involved even when we assent, but ultimately it's grace that provides the impetus for assenting to the articles of faith, even if we have, like Mortimer Adler, a great argument we think is compelling. That's not the same as faith. Another thing he wants to deal with uh, is that reason can't mean you can't believe in anything without evidence or argument. So I have a quote here from Aquinas. The existence of God and other light truths about God, which can be known by natural reason, are not articles of faith, but are preambles to the articles. For faith presupposes natural knowledge, even as grace presupposes nature. And perfection supposes something that can be perfected. Nevertheless, there is nothing to prevent a man who cannot grasp a proof, accepting as a matter of faith something which in itself is capable of being scientifically known and demonstrated. Here's the deal. How many of us, when we are in Mass and we recite the Nicene Creed and we say, the Son is consubstantial with the Father. I mean, how many of us know what consubstantial means? I mean, my saintly grandmother, who was not a philosopher, she was a seamstress who lived in Brooklyn, New York. I lived with her when I was in graduate school. Uh, she was an Italian, a Sicilian from the old country, and she went to Mass every day and recited every Sunday the Nicene Creed. And I love my grandma, but I don't think she knew what consubstantial with the Father meant. Now she's like, right now, asking God to have mercy on me for saying that. <laughs> uh, so, so and, and, and there are lots of things that, that we believe, uh, we assent to, even if you don't fully grasp or understand it. Right? I mean, think of it as sort of the theological version of agreeing to terms of service. Like, how many of you actually read those things? You know, you get, you know, do you agree to this? I want the act. You know, I agree. Um, so, so what Aquinas wants to take an account, account of are just ordinary people, which is most of us, right? I mean, even though I'm a philosopher and I studied theology, there's lots of things I assent to as a Catholic that I have neither the time nor the interest to study. I, I have a friend, um, uh, William Lane Craig. I don't know if you know who William Lane Craig is. He's an evangelical philosopher. He's a, he's a good friend. And 14 years ago, when I returned to the Catholic Church, I had grown up Catholic. Then, I, as I told you, I, I, I became an agnostic. But before that, I became an evangelical. Uh, I was a teenage, uh, ev I was a teenage werewolf. No, I was a teenage <laughs> evangelical. And then I became an agnostic. And then I became an evangelical again. And then 14 years ago, at the age of 46, I returned to the church. And at the time, I was president of the Evangelical Theological Society. And a week after I returned, I resigned as, as president of the ETS. And at, nevertheless, I still went to the meeting of the ETS because I was supposed to deliver a paper. And I, I did that. And Bill Craig was there. And so afterwards, Bill said to me, he said, Frank, he said, I, I don't object to you becoming Catholic. I, I can't do it. But how do you deal with the doctrine of the assumption of merit? You know, that's a tough one to accept. And I said, I said, Bill, 
Do you believe in the Bible? It's yes. 100%, yes. How do you deal with God ordering the Israelites to kill all the Canaanites? He says, oh, I understand. My point was that, that when we assent to, you know, what the church teaches, it doesn't mean that you've worked everything out, right? It could be that, I mean, there are certain things that I probably, if you sort of ask me candidly, yeah, I believe it all, but there are certain things I'm at least intellectually more convinced of than other things, right? But if I believe that the church is in fact founded by Jesus and that the, the successors of the, of the apostles are here with us today and they run the church, then I kind of have to believe all these things, right? But it's not against reason. Reason plays a role, right? So, uh, but, it's, but it can't all be reduced to or mastered or domesticated by reason. So I, when I told, what I basically was telling Bill is that you too, as an evangelical who accepts the inerrancy and authority of scripture, find parts of scripture that are difficult. Well, there may be parts of it, the assumption may be one of them, that maybe some Catholics find difficult because there isn't the kind of historical evidence for that, like compared to, let's say, the resurrection, right? But it's something that actually was believed in very, back into the church, back very long, long into the history of the church. It was called the Dormition uh, of the Virgin Mary. Uh, there are all these churches named after it. Uh, there's no burial place for Mary. You'd think that if she were... I mean, she was the mother of our Lord, you know? So, so all these things sort of imply that. Are they proof? No. But the Pope, I think it was, was it Pius IX? Is it, was it Pius IX that declared the, um, no, no, it was, it was Pius XII. The twelve. It was the ninth was the uh, Immaculate Conception. Okay. It was a Pius. <laughs> so it was, yeah, the, the Pius IX, the Immaculate Conception, Pius XII um, assumption, I think it was 1950. Right? But the church had believed it for a long time. In fact, the parish that my wife and I go to is the St. Mary of the Assumption in Waco, and that parish is older than the doctrine. <laughs> right? So it's believed a long time. So my point here is that what Aquinas is trying to do here, he's trying to account for the fact there are just going to be people in the church that can't figure everything out. Right? And that actually makes, there's a, there's a certain common sense about this, Right? So one of, the, one of the temptations I think that, that uh, any one of us could fall into, and I think I fell into this when I was younger, is that I always wanted to have an argument for everything. And the reality is if, if that's the way you're going to live your faith, you're, it's not really going to be sustained. I mean, think of it as like a marriage, right? So imagine every morning you woke up and rehearsed the arguments as to why you married your spouse you will not stay married long, right? <laughs> so you can't treat your faith that way either. Again, it's not to say there aren't arguments. It just means that that's not the whole story. And I think Aquinas clearly recognizes this. So when we talk about God, what do we mean by God? Oftentimes, um, especially if you, you read a lot of um, kind of popular atheist literature, God is almost portrayed as a sort of Super, uh, super being of, of some kind, right? Um, a kind of an invisible old man in the sky. And the reality, though, is that the way in which God is understood 
in classical Christian thought by thinkers like Aquinas, and not only thinkers like Aquinas, uh, Protestant thinkers like Calvin and Luther, is that, that God is not just a being, but the fullness of being. That he's not just, like, he's not something that you need when science doesn't work. You know, he's not a gap to fill our ignorance of the natural world. And it's, in some ways, some of the more contemporary movements that I think are motivated well, but I think are mistaken, that attempt to defend belief in God by treating God as if, he, as if he's a scientific hypothesis. Something like the intelligent design movement. Uh, so I've been, I, in my new book, Never Doubt Thomas, I have a chapter on, on that and why I'm, I'm critical of it. So what, what is, who is God? Uh, the self-existent, necessary, incomprehensible, perfect, and unchangeable creator of all that exists. God, in the words of St. Anselm, is that then which no greater can be conceived. As I said already, God is not a hypothesis to account for that which science presently cannot account. He's not a being, but rather the being that is the source of all that which receives an existence from another. This is why intelligent design theory, as I already mentioned, is inadequate. I could actually talk about that, and you may want to raise that question. Uh, but uh, uh, I, I have listed four arguments, or I, what did I put on my notes? I put three plus one. So there are, as, as I've already mentioned, lots of arguments out there. So each of these arguments, um, I'm just going to briefly just, I'm not going to go over them. I'm just going to mention sort of their, their style and what they're trying to do. So if you're a, a theist, if you believe in God, if you believe in the God of classical theism, the God of, uh, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that uh, Muslims, Christians, and Jews believe in, in, this, in the sense that he is the creator of all that exists, certain things about the universe seem to have to be true. So, uh, for example, that uh, God is just not another thing in the universe, but the being on which everything dependent exists. His creatures have natural ends or purposes, including our mind, uh, which has a proper function, and that immaterial things, including our souls, moral claims, and numbers, uh, have to exist as well. I don't know if you ever thought about that, about numbers existing. Numbers are kind of mysterious, right? Uh, and there are philosophers uh, that offer arguments for God's existence from the existence of abstract objects like numbers. So let me just uh, briefly uh, mention three of the arguments that I, that I, um, uh, that I alluded to and uh, that I've listed here on the, on the study sheet. Uh, one argument that, ha that has become popular in the past 30 years or so is the argument from reason. Um, actually, it goes a little bit further back than that. In his small book, Miracles, C.S. Lewis offers this argument. It's been rehabilitated today by a philosopher named Victor Reppert, who I uh, believe is a philosophy professor. I was a philosophy professor. I think he teaches at Mesa Community College in, um, in the Phoenix area. It's, there's a version of it offered by Alvin Plantiga, the gentleman that I mentioned uh, earlier. And the argument basically is from, it, 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 it is an attempt to show that if 
uh, if, if in fact our mental faculties are not the result of, uh, if they're not ordered towards knowing, then we can't trust them. So if somebody says, you know, human beings and all our faculties are simply the result of chance plus time, well, that would mean, that is to say, the, uh, our, our mental faculties only exist because they have survival value. Well, then how can we trust our mental faculties to tell us truth about the world? Because it could be, in some cases, maybe all cases, believing falsehoods about the world actually enhances our survival. It's a, it's a very, there's different variations on this argument. And the point of it is to sort of undercut a view called uh, naturalism. That is the view that all that exists is the physical, natural world, and that the, the complexity and order of everything can be totally accounted for uh, by purely natural causes. There ha there's no first cause. Uh, there's no divine mind, let's say, guiding human evolution or anything like that. So the attempt here is to kind of undercut naturalism. Now, it's not a Thomistic type argument. It's a kind of probabilistic argument. It's not the kind of argument that Aquinas would, would consider to be a rational argument. But today, lots of people think that it's a reasonable argument. A second type of argument is an, argue, that is, is an argument from abstract objects. I've already alluded to it. It basically argues that there are certain necessary truths that we know, like uh, the circumference of any circle will equal two pi radius. That's necessarily true. Uh, in fact, it, even if there are no circles in the world, it's still true. Even if there was no world, it'd still be true. But abstract objects have to exist in a mind, so there has to be at least one mind that's necessary. It's kind of, it's really abstract. I like this argument. I tend to like those kind of abstract arguments. Uh, some people don't find it plausible at all. Uh, and then a third type of argument um, is the, an, an argument that from Aquinas. And there are different versions of it. Uh, I call it the, a, a Thomistic causal argument. Uh, and it's an argument that is defended by several philosophers, including Ed Fazer, um, Rob Coons and my colleague Alex Pruce and uh, a gentleman named Augris at Thomas Aquinas College. His first name escapes me right now. And I'm not going to get into the argument, but the argument is, a, is an argument from the fact that, the, that uh, everything that exists in the, in the universe that we encounter is not identical to its essence. So think about this. A saber-toothed tiger... You can, you can know the essence of a saber-toothed tiger. It doesn't exist. Whereas every, so it's not essential for any one of us to exist. I'm sorry to say. It's not part of the essence of human nature for humans to exist. Something has to sort of take our essence and put us together with something else so that we pop into existence. Right? You can't have an infinite regress of that. And so there has to be one, there has to be one thing whose essence is to exist. Yeah, let me, I'll open the floor for rest of just a moment. So, uh, so those are three types of arguments. Again, I don't have time to get into them in great detail because I'd like to open up the floor for questions. And I've been talking for an hour, which I, I just been shocked. I, I didn't think I would uh, take that long, but thank you. And I look forward to hearing uh, any of your questions.
So you had a question. Yeah. Yes. Um, so you were talking about how belief in God can kind of be like a, a basic belief. Yeah. Can that sort of, we, we're studying epistemology, we're studying infinite regress and whatnot. Yeah. Could that sort of solve the problem of infinite regress of arguments or, or reasons for beliefs if God stands as that basic belief? Yeah, I mean, that could, that could be true of most other beliefs, too. I mean, you, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, you can't have an argument for everything you never get out of bed, right? And so, so, yeah, so the idea that, uh, the idea that a rational, that, that in order to be rational, you need to have reasons for everything. Of course, the problem is you just, once you get to those, you need reasons and so forth. So in a way, what the idea of proper basicality you know, even aside from the issue of God, is that there just has to be a foundation, right? Even if, even if you could, in principle, come up with an argument for the foundation, nobody has that time. <laughs> so yeah, so there's a, there's a sense. So you're a philosophy major? Yes, sir. Oh, very good. Yeah. We need more philosophy majors. No. Yes. So your, your last, like, the last argument you, like, kind of described was that, like, there, there must be something that essence is doing. Yes. Why is that so? Well, that would be that would be God. I mean, there's obviously not enough time to. Yeah, like, like, I know, like that that being that essence is to exist is God, but like, why does that being has to exist? Like, what's the defense of that? Argument? Well, it, 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 the sufficient reason for His existence is Himself. In other words, if if if, if God exists, if, if it's the essence of God, if if, if it's if, if it's part of God's essence to exist. Then he doesn't need anything to bring him into existence. So in other words, so in other words, you don't need the, so the questions. The argument isn't that everything that um, is a combination of essence and existing that everything that exists is a thing that has essence uh, that can uh, uh, distinguish essence and existence. It's that that you couldn't have everything like that without falling into infinite regress. So there has to at least be one being whose essence it is to exist. I don't know if that's helpful or yeah. it's more confusing. <laughs> so yeah, because I mean, there's variations. I, I don't know if you're getting at this because some ways in which the argument is presented is that you know every there's there's an argument called the Kalam cosmological argument which differs from this, where uh, the first premise is. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. That argument is a kind of causal series back in time. But this argument, the Thomistic argument, is just like concurrent causality. Like everything, it's a hierarchical causality. So now for that argument, some people say, well, who caused God? But even there, in that argument, the premise is everything that begins to exist has a cause. So if God didn't begin to exist, then you wouldn't need one. I'll just share yes. something. Uh, sure. I've actually long prayed uh, to, that, to that rationalistic uh, uh, mentality where uh, I would uh, study like different arguments for God's existence. And for, for a time being, they would, they would suffice and I would be okay with yeah. it. But then I would start doubting again. And then I would study one, another one, and then the same thing, I would be okay for a while. And the same thing, I would, I would uh, start looking for, for, for all these kinds of arguments, right? Um, which speaks to what you were saying, that uh, it's, it's not enough, you know, because ultimately the, the, the act of faith is, is, is supernatural. It's That's right. 
So, I mean, what you just said kind of reminded me of, of something that even, and this is obviously outside of faith, but I, I'm a white knuckle flyer. I shouldn't say that. I, my, sometimes I am. So if I don't get enough sleep, I slept well last night, so I flew well today. <laughs> but sometimes I'll like any little turbulence, I sometimes like grip the seat. And even though I know all the arguments that it's actually more dangerous to be in a car, right? I know all those arguments, and yet my belief I just think oh, this is it. Because I always tell myself, you know, when people get in plane crashes, they know all those arguments too. <laughs> right? So that of course makes it worse. Right? So yeah, so so there's a sense in which there's more. I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of things that are perfectly rational to believe in that, that we just we just kind of know. Like um that I think things like things that we believe are sacred, right? So, so think about something like um, why do we think, for example, that sexual assault is worse than regular assault? Right? We, we think it's far worse. In fact, if you could, if I punched one of you, you know, I could get in trouble. But I get five hundred dollars fine, right? But if I sexually assault, I can be in prison, right? So why do we why do we treat them differently? I think the reason why I treat them differently is because we have a kind of into, deep intuition about our sexual powers having a kind of sanctity to them that just are not present in our other powers. And it's difficult, I think it's difficult in a secular, naturalistic world to kind of under, to explain that. And so this is why we have these weird contradictions in our culture. We have the Me Too movement, which I agree with, I think that is a good thing, and at the same time, we have transactional views of sex in our popular culture. So if it's, if, but the Me Too movement says sex is not purely transactional. It cannot be used as a means to an end as, as part of an employment agreement. If that's considered to be vile. And yet, we have in our popular culture ways of talking about it that clearly treat it as transactional. It's, it's just this weird. So I think part of it has to do, we do have these there's, we have these beliefs, and I think you find this, you know, obviously the case of belief in God in terms of faith is different, but the fact that we can't come up with an argument for everything doesn't mean we're not rational in holding it. So let's give it a round of applause. Thank you. I won't read them, although once uh, when I was at University of Colorado giving a lecture, um, my mom called me. And I picked the phone up and I answered it. And my mom goes, are you, my mom was born in Brooklyn. She goes, uh, are you busy? So yeah, I'm giving a lecture at the University of Colorado right now. I said, do you want to say hi to the audience? So I put it up to Mike and she said hi and they said hi back. <laughs> um, so 